We're only a few days uh, away from 2020, and it's just, it's mind-blowing. Um, you know, I know for many of us, 2019 was a very, uh, an extremely difficult year. Uh, some have lost family members. Uh, for some, loved ones got diagnosed with uh, serious illness. Uh, some of us, we've had setbacks in our academics and even our careers. Um, 2019 was a difficult financial year, uh, maybe you experienced uh, broken relationships uh, within this past year. And I understand that, um, that this was a very challenging uh, year for a lot of us. At the same time, I know that 2019 for some was a great year. Uh, maybe you got married. Uh, maybe you added another child in, in your family. Uh, maybe you got into that grad program that you were hoping to get into. Uh, maybe you got that job or that promotion uh, that you were hoping for. And depending on which group you relate with, either you're looking forward to the new year or you're um, anxious of the new year. Um, you're either thinking the best is yet to come or the worst is yet to come. And I know that's the reality for many of us. And this is common to our human experience. Uh, we make projections of our future based on our past and even our present time circumstances. Uh, and what we do is we start to make plans as we think about 2020 to either drastically change our lives uh, to prevent and avoid the pains of 2019, or you start making plans to hopefully repeat the successes of this past year. Um, because what we want at the end of the day is control. Uh, predictability. The idea that we don't know what the future holds, it's a terrifying thought. It fills us with fear, anxiety, and insecurity. Right? The question is, what does my future look like? What is in store for my future? And not knowing what lies ahead produces in us paralyzing fear. And what many of us we succumb to is this idea is, that because we know that we don't have absolute control is um, i got to try my hardest and just hope for the best. I'm sure many of us, we've heard of this idea. Just do your best. Try your hardest and hope for the best. Now, if you, take, if, if you just pause and just parse that statement, it's not very reassuring. It's not confidence building. Right? What it's telling us is with your ability, with your effort, do all that you can and then hope for the best. Right? Even our efforts, even our, our abilities cannot predict the outcome of our lives. But many of us, we live in such a way. Right? All I can do is try my hardest and hope for the best. See, the hope that the world offers is flimsy at best because it's, it's found in finite and temporary things. Is it not? Money, success, careers, our families, our health, all temporary. When our ultimate hope is placed in these things, we quickly discover that they're unreliable. We cannot build our lives upon these things. It's shaky. It's ever-changing. And many of us were filled with disappointment because we were our hope is placed in these things. 
Right? In this world, all our effort is a means to attain a hope. Right? It's the American dream. But in Christianity, it's reversed. Hope is the reason for our efforts. Hope is the reason for our efforts. Christian hope isn't something we're trying to attain, but rather already in possession of. See, this gospel hope is far greater than worldly hope. It's a sure foundation that we can build our lives upon, and Paul tells us that it will not put us to shame. We will not be disappointed. It offers real rest, peace, purpose, and joy, even in the midst of all the variables of our lives, even in the midst of suffering and pain. We can experience these amazing things. So where do we find this hope? It's in the promise that one day Jesus will come back for us. See, all of December, our focus has been on the advent of Christ. But more specifically, on the first advent of Christ. His incarnation, his ministry, his life, his his crucifixion and resurrection. And all our focus has been on that amazing miracle when Jesus first came down to us in the form of a baby. Today, we'll be closing our advent series by looking at the second advent of Christ, the promise that he will come back for us. Now, I understand that this is a very controversial uh, idea and topic. Uh, There are debates about when, where, and how Jesus will return, and, and, and it can confuse us all, right? But I think for that reason, this is not a message that we often hear about, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I want to say that that is to our detriment, The idea that Jesus was coming back was in the consciousness of all the Christians of the early church. They were in eager anticipation for this. But because of the world that we live in and because people want to predict, right, and make drastic uh, predictions or or just crazy predictions of when he's going to come back, we try to, we kind of avoid this topic. The goal of today's message is to focus on the central truths regarding Christ's coming. And for that truth to shape our lives in the present. So we'll look at the promise of the second advent. We'll look at the purpose of it. And we'll close with our posture as we wait for it. So the promise, the purpose, and our posture as we wait. So first, the promise. Now being a father uh, now for seven years, uh, I've come to learn the power of my words to my kids, especially to my first two. All right, my kids are so innocent. They believe in everything that I say to them. Um, and I have to be careful of, of making promises to them. Right? Um, I, I learned early on that I can't make an ambiguous promise. Right? That one day I'll get this for you. One day I promise I'll do this for you. Because once I make that promise, my kids will not stop asking me, when is that day? When will you do that for me? When will you get that for me? Now, so then, now I learned that I have to be very specific about the promises that I make to my kids. Deacon, this is my son's name, Deacon, when you're 10 years old, at 10, he's 7 right now, or he's turning 7, I'll buy you your first game console. 
right? Because he's now into getting games and all his friends are playing games. I can't just say, I'm going to buy it one day for you because I will never hear the end of it. Dad, when? When, 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 when? So I specify, when you're 10, I'll get that for you. To get him to stop asking me, when? Right? The Bible is full of promises. God's plan to redeem and save this world could be understood through these promises. And we call them covenants. All throughout scripture, we see God making these covenant promises to his people, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, and David. And he makes these binding promises to these people to tell them, I will save you. You will be my people and I will be your God. And so the Old Testament is an unfolding and a developing of these promises that God makes. And what we'll see all throughout Scripture is God upholds his promise. He keeps the end of his bargain. Right? Over and over again, we see God keeping his promises and following through with his words. But his people, on the other hand, we see them failing to keep and uphold their covenant obligations. They're worshiping other gods. They're failing to obey his law. And as a result, God's people were constantly conquered by people. They were uh, exiled as God's people. And when we're approaching the New Testament, the Gospels, Israel is now occupied by the Roman government, and the people are still waiting for a Savior to come. And God again delivers on his promise that he will send a savior. And that is Jesus Christ, his one and only son to be the deliverer and the redeemer of this world. And this is what we know as the first advent of Christ. He came down in human flesh to fulfill all the covenant expectations that Israel failed to uphold. To live a per- perfect, righteous life, but then to ultimately die in the sinner's place on that cross. But he then remained dead. He rose again after three days, accomplishing our redemption. By faith, we can now experience forgiveness. We can experience being reconciled with our Heavenly Father. We can have intimacy with him. And he wrote, so after he rose again from the dead, he lived another 40 days interacting with all sorts of people. And then he ascended back to heaven to be with his father. But the story does not end there. He makes another promise. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, in my, father's ho- in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and will take you, take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. Jesus is preparing his disciples to ultimately be without his teach- their teacher and their master. He's going back to his father's house to prepare rooms. And he will personally come back to escort 
his followers to these rooms that he has prepared. This is an amazing promise that Jesus makes. And the question for us to consider is, do we believe in this? Can we take Jesus at his words? Can we live our lives in anticipation and eager waiting for this time when he returns? And I want to say, and I want to argue, there's no reason not to believe in him. Everything that Jesus said he will do, he did. Everything that Jesus said would happen, happened in his earthly ministry. He predicted that the temple would be destroyed, and it was destroyed. He predicted that one of his closest friends would betray him, and Judas did. He said that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crows, and Peter did. Everything that Jesus has said in his ministry happened. So Jesus is not just a good moral teacher that we can just think well of. No, he is God. His words are God's words. And what we know in the revelation of scripture is God cannot break his promises. So when Jesus says that he will come back to personally escort us into the rooms that he's prepared, he means it. And we can bank our lives upon it. See, a promise is only good as a trustworthiness of the promise maker. Jesus promised that he would come back for us. But here's a difficult truth. We have to wait for it. We have to wait for it. It's a future promise. And just like my kids, all of us, we hate waiting. We hate waiting. We don't like future promises. You know, waiting is becoming increasingly more difficult in our time of instant everything. Instant everything. Instant entertainment. Instant gratification. Instant delivery. But as we get older and mature, we understand that there are things well worth waiting for. And this brings us to our second idea. The purpose of Jesus' advent. You know, Jesus, uh, Jesus, Jane, uh, my wife, she calls me, she calls me Scrooge um, during this Christmas season. I'm not a fan of Christmas. Um, I, and when I think about it, it's quite cruel to our kids, right? Because, uh, you know, I have three kids, and, and what happens is people start sending our gifts way before Christmas, right? And we have a Christmas tree, and they see the gifts under the Christmas tree. My kids are seven, four, and now almost two. Right? It's torture for the kids. Every day as they go into the living room, they see their, their presents. And it's torture for us. Because they're asking, can we open one? When is it Christmas? Every single day. Like, no, you cannot open it. Like, it's just a, a cruel, like, ritual, I, I feel like. I just can't stand it. For us Christians, it's, it's, it's quite similar. There are gifts that we have. And, and what's even worse is we know what's inside those gifts in the promise that Jesus is going to come back. But we have to wait in order to open them, to experience the joys of these gifts. See, the fact that Jesus promised that he'll come back tells us that there is unfinished business. That he didn't do everything in his first advent. 
helpful, uh, was, was helpful for us in understanding the story of the Bible and God's plan for our world. Uh, theologians have created these four categories to read the Bible and understand the Bible, and they're going to go up on the screen for you, right? What's within Scripture is these four major themes. Creation, right, that's the Genesis account. Fall, which is also in the Genesis. Redemption, and then restoration. In Jesus' first advent, he came to redeem us, to pay the ultimate price for our sins so that by faith we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. He wanted to free us from our sins. And he accomplished that in his first advent. But there is another advent that we're waiting for, when Jesus will finally come back to restore everything, to make everything right, to renew everything, to do away with sin, Satan and death once and for all. So as Christians, we are living between the first and second advent. We are living in the in-between period. Right? So in Jesus' first coming, what he did was he inaugurated the kingdom. He inaugurated it. It was the inauguration of his kingdom. In the second coming, he will actualize and materialize that kingdom. And the question is, what does that look like? What does that look like? And this is where we struggle, right? Because in order to know if the wait is worth it, we need to know what we're waiting for. And because we don't know, and it's a little obscure and ambiguous, the waiting becomes more and more difficult. There is a picture that the Bible gives us of what will happen once he comes back. Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25. Listen carefully to what life will look like once Jesus comes back. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more, no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Nor more, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and, and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy. In all my holy mountain, says the Lord. You know, John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, receives the same vision. And he records this in Revelation 21. And when you have time, I want to encourage you to go there and read that. There's a lot here that gives us a picture of what will happen when Jesus Christ returns. What you won't find in this, 
in this description is an abstract spiritual reality where we're all naked wearing white underwear and singing blessed be the name of the Lord into eternity. That is not what we see here. What we see here is actually a materialized physical world, a new city. You know the prayer as, uh, that, that we pray, on earth as it is in heaven, it will become a reality. The new heavens and the new earth will now become one. It, heaven will come down and form this new city. There's going to be work being done. There are, houses are going to be built. There's going to be farming and cultivation. But the main difference is we won't, there won't be any frustration in our work. We won't have to toil so hard. Work will become easy and fruitful. Another thing that we see is there's peace. There's no more weeping. No more tears. No death. There's going to be a reunion of believers together. This is an amazing picture that Jesus gives us, that God gives us of the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus will come back to establish peace in all of created order. And so then, his coming will be different the second time around. He's not going to come in, in humility. He's going to come in glory and with authority. He's not going to come as, as an infant. He's going to come as a conquering king. He's not going to ride in on a donkey. He's going to ride in on a white horse with a sword. Now think about that. that that's both comforting and terrifying, is it not? But Jesus coming in the fullness of his glory and with power and authority. It's comforting because Jesus will make every wrong right. He's going he's gonna to make everything that's wrong about this world, all the injustices, all the brokenness, and he's going to make it right. And this is tremendous comfort that he's going to rid this world of evil and corruption. But on the other hand, this is a very terrifying image because it's talking about final judgment. Those in Christ will have nothing to fear because the Bible tells us there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. But there is bad news for those that aren't in Christ. They'll be eternally separated and there is a place of eternal torment and punishment. And that is hell. Jesus will come to restore all that sin has ravaged in our lives and in this world. He'll make all things new. The Christian hope is found in this new city that we are waiting to inhabit. Where there will be unfiltered, unadulterated fellowship with God. Where we can fully enjoy him forever. Where faith will become finally sight. And hope actualized and realized. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is what we're waiting for. 
the ache that we feel, the distress that we see our loved ones in physically, will one day no more be our lowly bodies, glorious like Jesus's, perfect, perfect. This is the glorious hope that we have in the second advent of Christ. And as Christians, we are called to live in eager anticipation and longing for this new city. This is the hope that we have. This is what we have to look forward to. And this brings us to our final idea, our posture in this time of waiting. How should the promised return of Christ and the establishing of this new city change the way we live our lives? See, if this promise is true, it should make all the difference. It should change actually everything about who we are and what we do and how we pursue relationships. It should change everything. The first thing that I want to share is it should loosen our grip for the things of this world. Because we were meant for another world. So the promise of Jesus is coming back and this new city should loosen our grips. Right? Don't get me wrong. There is actually real joy, real pleasure for us to experience in this lifetime. God has gifted us with such amazing things to enjoy in this world. But this is just all the things that we have, though. It's just a foretaste. It's just an appetizer for the greater joys that await us. There is everlasting joy that we will experience when we're face to face with our Savior Jesus Christ. See, many of us were gripping way too tightly to this world and to our lives. Our money, our possessions, our careers, our relationships, our children, our studies, our looks. Right? Instead of seeing them as gifts, we worship them as gods. Where all of our, all of our lives, are, the meaning and, and our worth is found in these things. And so we're gripping so tightly. See, the promise that Jesus will come back and the promise of this new city should temper our expectations of this world and the joys that it can offer. It's sinking sand. It will disappoint us. It will frustrate us. It will destroy relationships if we think that this is all that there is. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we are sojourners simply passing through. Secondly, although we are passing through, the character, characteristics of this new city means that our lives here and now actually matters to God. See, a lot of people, we make the mistake of thinking about the new heavens and the new earth and Jesus coming back, saying that, that this life actually doesn't mean anything. It is insignificant. It can't be further from the truth. The fact that Jesus will come back and there's a new city that will inhabit and that's actual real work that's going to be done means that what we do here and now has eternal value and significance. It matters more. See, what we see both in the first and second advent of Christ is the affirmation and the, of the goodness of creation. Or Jesus didn't come down in a, in a spiritual body. He came down in a physical body. He physically died. 
And when he rose again, he rose again in a physical body. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to come back physically to establish a material new city. Like Christians, we're not dualists thinking that the spiritual is better and the material is evil. That is not our take. Jesus tells us and proves that that's not true. He comes to us physically and we will resurrect with him physically. And so what that means is this life and this world and this planet matters to God. It is good. It should change the way that we work. You know how God cares for this world? It is through your vocation. You know how God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves? It is through your vocation. It's through your work. That is the primary way we love our neighbor as ourselves. Through the work that he's given us, the gifts and talents. Doctors, nurses, engineers, teachers, artists, scientists, contractors, social workers. These are all ways in which God cares for and wants to affirm that everyone bears the image of God. That this world, this planet, creation care matters. See, God has placed us in this world to be beacons of light. And we all know that light shines the brightest in darkness. And we live in a very dark world. The everlasting hope we are in possession of should intrigue this world. It should raise questions from those that don't know this hope. The fact that he hasn't returned yet means, as a church, we're not done yet. There's more work to be done. Our mission is to all nations, every tribe, tongue, and people, for them to know this hope. We are called to live in such a way to attract and create fascination for unbelievers. And so, yes, there is real purpose. There's a godly, eternal purpose in the work that God has given you, in the relationships that he has placed in your life. In every sphere, there is an eternal purpose. And it is for us to point people to this living hope, to Christ who will come back for us. And this brings us to our last application. One of the greatest opportunities we have to witness to others about this hope is not when actually things are going well. It's actually when things are going bad. When you're suffering. When you're in pain. Jesus' advent gives us hope and even meaning in our suffering, pain, and loss. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-7. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, uh, through, uh, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. For those in Christ, you will suffer. All of us, we will suffer. But hear the words of Peter, though for a while. Though for a while. It is temporary. 
our suffering in this lifetime is temporary. Not only is it short-lived, but there is a distinct purpose in our suffering. It is to refine our faith and ready us for this kingdom that is coming. See, pain keeps us honest, does it not? It keeps us honest about what we believe about God and this world. It actually exposes the very false cause that we worship and the idols that we have. It reveals our true treasure. But it is all to make us more complete, to build up faith and to ready us for this new city. See, even the most severe form of suffering, death, death, it cannot rob us of this hope. For those in Christ, we will experience a resurrection where we'll be glorified like Christ. And the promise is that we will be reunited with our loved ones that are also believers. This is an amazing hope that we have. See, the truth that Christ will return for us gives us strength to endure and persevere even through the worst sufferings because we know he will restore and renew all things. A very encouraging passage that I, I would want all of us to regularly read. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Momentary affliction for an eternal weight of glory. What amazing news and a promise that we have. You know, my wife, Jane, and I, our relationship moved very quickly. Um, we dated for about 10 months, and our engagement was about for three months. Uh, so almost within a year, all of that happened, and we got married. And now we've been married for about, you know, almost 10 years. We're going on 10 years. Uh, but while we're dating, and the talks of our relationship was getting more and more serious, and, and, and marriage wasn't too far away from our conversation, uh, I thought it was time and, and ready right, for me to, to drop the L word, right? love. Right? So in our dating, um, after like, I think we're hanging out or we're on the phone, I forgot exactly the exact uh, scenario, but I, I, you know, mustered up the courage to tell her, I love you. I love you. And naturally, I would expect to hear, I love you too. But I heard nothing. <laughs> nothing. Because Jane has this thing about the L word, right? Because she understands the significance of that word. She will not say it until there was a ring on it, right? Her favorite song during the times we were dating was Single Ladies, right? Every time the song would come out, she would just lift up her hand and, and show me, right? If you like it, you should put a ring on it. And, you know, but for me, I was, I was a poor seminary student, a part-time college pastor. I knew I needed to, to, you know, save money to buy a ring. 
Uh, so I picked up, uh, you know, a coaching job. I was a, a tennis coach at a high school, a side gig to, to raise enough. And, I, and finally I uh, saved enough and I got the ring and I was so scared of holding that ring because that's the most expensive thing I ever owned in my life at that point. Um, but finally I got down on my knees and I proposed and, and the ring was there. And that ring is actually very powerful. Because every time she looks down, down on it, she, she remembers of my love and commitment to her. And it was only after that ring was on her finger, she says, I love you too. Right? I love you too. But there's another thing that happens when there's a ring on it. All the other guys know that she's no longer available. Right? It's a powerful symbol. It's a powerful symbol. Why do I share this with you? Church, we are Jesus' betrothed. As a church, we are betrothed to Jesus, meaning that we're engaged to him. We are waiting for a final wedding ceremony, a final wedding between Christ and us, the church. That wedding ceremony will happen when he returns. But until then, we're not left wondering, does Jesus really love me? We're not, we're not questioning that. Why? Why? Because he already came to us once. He came to us once and he gave his life for us. He demonstrated his love for us by going to that cross and dying for us. You think an engagement ring is powerful? Look at the cross. He's given us all the reason to believe of his undying love for you and me. But we have to wait. We are called to wait. Jesus gives us something better than an engagement ring, better than a diamond. He gives us his very spirit, which is a sign and seal of his love for us. The very spirit of Jesus takes residence in our lives. And that spirit testifies of Jesus' love for you and me. He deposited his very spirit in us to assure us that he loves us, that we belong to him, that we are his forevermore. But the truth is we're still waiting for that final marriage ceremony. You know what happens while we're waiting? We forget. We forget because life is so hard. There's so many distractions. And so we forget Right? We forget to look down. We forget to look up at the cross to remind us that he loves us, that we belong to him. But that is why we have the church. That is why he gives us his word. That is why we have the gift of prayer. These are all gifts of God to remind us in this world that distracts us that we are his, that we are engaged to him, that we are waiting for that ceremony. See, brothers and sisters, I'm not strong enough. I'm not strong enough to not come to church. Look, at, look around you. Look at this amazing, powerful image of God's love for sinners. Look at all of us. I'm not strong enough to miss a Sunday because I need this reminder. I'm not strong enough not to read the Bible because I forget. And I'm not strong enough not to pray. I'm so weak. I'm so frail. I forget all the time that I'm betrothed to Jesus. 
These are gifts that God gives us to remind us of his love. It is up to us to open these gifts and to access them. To close, I want to read from Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Church, we are called to ready ourselves for this amazing day, for this wedding. See, the Christian life needs to be molded and shaped by our future. Do you know what's in our future? Do you see it? Are you amazed by it? It should create in us an eager anticipation, an active waiting. See, brothers and sisters, we don't know the time in which Jesus will return. We do know that he will come back. The question I want to ask you is, will you be amongst those that Jesus escorts, him, escorts us personally to these rooms? Or will you be on the side of the condemned? We think that we know when our last days are. We don't. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But what we do know is today you can respond to this amazing gospel message. You can be counted amongst the saints. You can have that room that Jesus has prepared. Would you consider receiving him today to receive this amazing gift? That's all you need to do. Jesus, I'm not perfect. I'm not worthy to be in your kingdom. But I know you gave me someone that made a way so I can, that I can be a part of it. So you confess your sins, you repent from it, and you trust in Jesus. That invitation is for you today. Consider him. And if you're serious about considering and wanting to take that step, come talk to one of the pastors. We would love to pray with you and talk, talk about the next steps. But for those who are found in Christ, may we wait patiently for his return. Mayor, May the way that we work and live and even our marriages point to this ultimate marriage ceremony. And for those that are suffering today, patiently, prayerfully endure. It's only for a little longer. He will come back and he'll make us new. Church, may we pray the prayer of the early church. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come. Swiftly, come back for us. Church, may we do all these things and, and live our lives fully for his glory as we wait, as we wait for him to come back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much of this amazing promise and this, the prospect and the picture of this new city that we can take a hold of and actually build our lives upon. God, I thank you so much that you will come back for us. Father, I want to pray for those here right now that aren't sure of what would happen if you would come back. 
We're not sure if we're going to be the ones escorted by you personally. Or if we'll be standing among the condemned. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would grant us faith. Give people faith today to believe. To believe in Jesus and what he did for us on that cross. And Father, for those of us who are having a difficult time living in this world, who are suffering, whether it's with depression, whether it's with a loved one that's in the hospital, whether it's not knowing about their future or even prolonged singleness, whatever it may be, help us to see. Help us to see that we are your beloved. We are betrothed to you. May you give us the strength to patiently endure and wait for your coming. God, you are such a good Savior. We look forward to the day when we're face to face with you, where our faith will become sight. Holy Spirit, give us this eager anticipation to see you return to us. Come, Jesus, come. We need you. We give you all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.